Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Jillian Hayes, and I am an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship clinical pharmacist at Duke University Hospital in Durham, North Carolina. Today, we'll be diving into respiratory viruses, and before you turn off this episode, we will not be discussing everyone's least favorite respiratory virus, COVID. That said, the introduction of COVID into our viral landscape really has impacted how we think about the other community-acquired respiratory viruses that we will be focusing on today, including influenza, parainfluenza, rhinovirus, human metanumovirus, and RSV. We'll briefly touch on epidemiology of these pathogens, review the ever-changing vaccine pipeline, review available treatments, and discuss how detection of these pathogens impacts antimicrobial stewardship. No matter where you practice, we think this episode has a little something for everyone. This episode was supported by an educational grant from Janssen Therapeutics, Division of Janssen Products, LP, and we thank our sponsor for the opportunity to discuss this important topic. And before the opportunity passes me by, I'd like to take a moment to applaud Nick Tournay for the superb title suggestion for today's episode, It is a True Work of Art. There's so much goodness here to dive into, so let's introduce you to our brilliant panel of speakers, Drs. Ann Falsey, Crystal Hodge, and Mike Eisen. Dr. Ann Falsey is a professor of medicine at the University of Rochester School of Medicine. She received her Bachelor of Science degree in biology at Providence College and doctorate in medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. She completed her residency in internal medicine at Strong Memorial Hospital at the University of Rochester and Infectious Diseases Fellowship at Yale University and the University of Rochester. Initially, the focus of her research was defining the epidemiology and impact of RSV in adult populations. However, more recently, Dr. Falsey has broadened her research to include numerous viral respiratory pathogens, including influenza, coronaviruses, parainfluenza viruses, and human metanumovirus. She is a member of the steering committee for the Global Influenza Initiative, the Infectious Diseases Society of America, and the American Virology Society, and has published over 200 peer-reviewed articles, reviews, book chapters, and abstracts in this space. And we could not be more thrilled to have you join us on Breakpoints today. Hi, pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Next up is Dr. Crystal Hodge, who completed her PharmD at the University of Texas at Austin, followed by a PGY-1 residency at Emory University Hospital and a multi-site PGY-2 and ID at Emory University Hospital Midtown and Emory University Hospital. She now practices as an assistant professor with the University of North Texas Health Science Center College of Pharmacy and as an ID clinical pharmacist at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. She is board certified in infectious diseases as well as pharmacotherapy, and her current practice interests include multidrug resistant infections, infections in immunocompromised hosts, fungal infections, and public health. Her ultimate life goal is to make her job obsolete, indicating that humans won the war on infections thanks to key changes in patient care, practice patterns, and public messaging. We absolutely love that life goal. Crystal, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, y'all. I'm excited to be here. And last, but most certainly not least, is Dr. Mike Eisen, who is a professor in the Divisions of Infectious Diseases and Organ Transplantation at Northwestern University, Feinberg School of Medicine. He has spent his career focused on studying respiratory viral infections and their management in hospitalized and immunocompromised patients. Mike, we're thrilled to have you on Breakpoints. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So as promised, we will begin our time together focusing on the epidemiology and clinical importance of these community-acquired respiratory viruses to adequately frame our discussion. 
And I know this is a big question, but can you help us set the stage a little bit uh, with pertinent epidemiology for these community acquired respiratory viruses? How has the epidemiology changed in recent years? Sure, happy to sort of tackle a big, big topic. And probably the most important thing to say is respiratory viral infections are just incredibly common. Uh, they affect people of all ages. Uh, most common when you're a little kid, particularly you're a school age kid, you get every virus known to man and then you pass it to your parents. Um, and they really gradually diminish over time with age. Um, but the sequela or the severity of these infections tends to be highest uh, in the little babies and in our elderly folks, with the exception of people in the middle who um, get chronic diseases or, or immunosuppressed. Um, regarding the seasonality of, of respiratory viruses, they, they used to have kind of well-established patterns. Uh, many of the respiratory viruses tend to be most common in the winter time or in the um, uh, early spring, things like influenza, respiratory syncytial virus, um, metanumovirus, uh, rhinovirus tends to, tended to be most common in the fall uh, when kids go back to school. But even though we're not gonna talk too much about COVID, I feel like I should just say a word about the fact that uh, COVID really derailed all of that. And so, uh, when COVID hit with the public health measures and the masking and the social distancing, uh, we just saw a dramatic drop in pretty much all the respiratory viruses with the very kind of peculiar exception of rhinovirus. That rhinovirus uh, kind of persisted throughout uh, the pandemic. Uh, but now with things coming back, uh, we are seeing all the usual suspects. So, you know, what was there before is, is there now. And um, whether or not and when they'll establish their usual seasonal patterns is a little bit unclear. Um, just for instance, we saw respiratory syncytial virus having very unusual summertime outbreaks in the United States when usually it's a wintertime virus. So again, um, all, all the usual badness will be back. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting too, and you know, the the other thing that I, I find interesting is with the change in the testing and diagnostic landscape. Uh, it'll be interesting to see not necessarily if the seasonality changes, but if our recognition changes of some of these viruses. I think patients are very worried about uh, COVID-19 and oftentimes I think wanting to get tested. Um, we have uh, broader availability of molecular diagnostics, including multiplex uh, assays, particularly those that detect flu, RSV, and uh, COVID-19. Um, and so we may actually uh, have a better understanding, uh, particularly on the outpatient side of the uh, impact of uh, some of these viruses that may not have been fully recognized in the past when, for example, RSV testing wasn't broadly available for, for adults. So I think it's, it's going to be interesting to see how kind of our not so much the epidemiology, but our understanding and recognition of these uh, diseases uh, uh, change over time. Um, you know, in the hospital, uh, we've had diagnostic testing uh, that usually is uh, multiplex, so able to look for a lot of these uh, viruses. But I think we'll talk a little bit later in the, the discussion. I think it's still uh, an area where we have a lot of missed opportunities when we've 
looked uh, in the past, many of these patients that might have benefited from therapy very early on, um, even though they had a positive test, didn't get treated, um, and may not have uh, had their antibiotics discontinued. And so really, uh, perhaps with the broader use of diagnostics, we'll have hopefully better recognition of the clinical impact of this in our patient population. Um, I was just going to add that I completely agree with what y'all have said, especially the seasonality piece. And I think a lot of us are very interested to see how that would go. And I thought it was very fortuitous. There have been a couple of supplements related to viral infections and particularly respiratory viral infections that have come out recently in August. The Journal of Infectious Diseases had a supplement dedicated to RSV. So it'll be interesting to see how that data will change with these more and more information from these new molecular diagnostics. Yeah, you know, and Mike, your your point about not just the uh, epidemiology, um, the the real changes, but testing practices. And so, we we looked into our own hospitals' testing practices because we, with the uptick in um, kids that were positive, we we just didn't see the old folks coming into the hospital. And part of that is, you know, they were still afraid of their their grandchildren because. Uh, you know, uh, there was still a lot of COVID around. Um, but the other thing that was interesting is there was an increased detection in middle-aged adults. So 18 to sort of 50, um, a lot of outpatient testing, and that was being driven by COVID, that, you know, people had a sniffle and they wanted to know what they had. Um, so it, it it's really unearthing a lot of viral activity for which we we really didn't have much information. Yeah. The, the flip side I do also worry about is, you know, like at our center, it's very easy to get COVID testing, but you have to jump through some hoops uh, to get additional testing in those patients. And so I think it also, at least this year, when we weren't as focused on multiplex testing as broadly, probably missed a lot of cases of non-COVID. Uh, you know, I know I had a lot of friends and patients that uh, thought they had COVID, got their testing, it was negative, and then just didn't come back for additional testing. Uh, so we don't really know which virus they had. Absolutely. Thank you all for that awesome introduction. Uh, to finish out the framing of our talk, uh, Mike, will you share with us a little bit of the why behind our episode today? Uh, what are some of the pertinent clinical implications of these viruses and why should we be devoting an entire episode to learning about them? Yeah. So I think that this is a, a really important issue. Uh, you know, many people will think of respiratory viruses uh, a mild nuisance. They get sick and they, they recover. But there are uh, huge parts of the population where this isn't the case. Um, classically, those patients that are immunocompromised, we clearly recognize that these patients are more likely to have uh, uh, severe disease, pneumonia, and even death uh, from uh, the infections. Older adults, as I think we'll be hearing about uh, a little later, are overrepresented in patients that have complicated and severe disease. Uh, and so uh, is a population that we really uh, focus on. And I think we've also uh, been understanding that there are other groups with underlying medical conditions, uh, patients with obesity for flu and COVID-19, for example, clearly have been uh, demonstrated to have uh, higher rates of severe disease. Patients with diabetes, kidney disease, and other medical conditions such as cardiovascular pulmonary disease uh, clearly have uh, more severe infection and more likely to progress 
to severe disease. And then kind of a unique population is those patients with uh, reactive airway disease. And uh, these uh, infections, even things uh, that typically are mild in most other populations like rhinovirus, can really trigger uh, severe uh, infections um, and severe complications in these patients. They oftentimes need an increase in the bronchodilators. Sometimes steroids may end up being hospitalized or even intubated because of uh, severe exacerbation of underlying disease. And I would just add to that, um, I, I completely agree uh, that one, one of the things we're, we're starting to get a handle on is all the collateral damage, uh, aside from the nastiness of the infection um, and the respiratory complications, particularly with flu, they've shown uh, pretty nicely that it's linked to um, strokes, heart attacks, um, certainly functional loss in older people. So even when the virus itself is gone, there can be um, you know, footprints of, of the damage it's done. The other thing I would like to add to the, what my colleagues have said that I think is absolutely appropriate is that in addition to the classic immunocompromised patient, like our bone marrow transplant recipients, or say a lung transplant, we're starting to have an increased population on immunotherapy for other reasons because of our increase in awareness of how the immune system works and our ability to have more targeted therapies. So in RA or ulcerative colitis, we're starting to see more and more immunotherapy used for other disease states. So that's also compromising some of our patients and their immune systems, but to what degree? And, and that is the question. So there have been a couple of articles that have been posted relating, you know, which infections you are at risk for, depending on what part of the immune system is suppressed. And I got to throw a shout out to ID Twitter because some of the articles have been posted there and they have these lovely illustrations um, that I, actually, I still use in practice. So Thank you, ID Twitter, for helping us all stay up to date. I think that's you know a really important point. I think a lot of people call, you know refer to as a blanket statement everyone that's got an alteration in their immune system as being immunocompromised. And and I do think that uh, it's important to recognize that there are big variations, and particularly those patients on biologics, I, I find them the most uh, challenging to understand who's truly at uh, uh, the highest risk. Even with uh, COVID nineteen, we've seen some of those populations not significantly more affected uh, uh, than others. But clearly those patients uh, that have a lung transplant, that have chemotherapies or uh, cancers that affect uh, bone marrows, particularly lymphocytes and B cells, really are the ones that uh, have the, the greatest consequences of these infections. And even a population like HIV patients, patients that are well-controlled generally act more like a healthy uh, adult, uh, whereas those patients that either are poorly controlled or not on medication may be at risk for more progressive disease. I think you bring up a great point with this understanding of the immune system and how much immunosuppression qualifies and what part. Um, when you brought up the patient living with HIV and is virologically suppressed, how they may act more like a person without HIV. But then we also have patients with uncontrolled diabetes. And to what degree are they immunosuppressed? And what? how does that put them at risk for different infections? So I, I've seen us try to grapple with that in practice several times. Um, and I don't think that there is a great answer for the overall net state of immunosuppression just yet, but hopefully we will get there. 
Well, it's not an episode of Breakpoints if we're not already talking about a gray area of practice uh, within the first couple of minutes. So definitely, I think we can all agree that these viruses don't just represent a casual week of the sniffles for everyone. Um, and this is part of the reason that we will be uh, discussing them today. So now that the stage has been set, uh, we'll move into therapeutic management, starting with prevention. Uh, so over the past few years, I like to think that most of society has gotten to see what Benjamin Franklin was on to when he said that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And while he was actually talking about fire safety with that statement, we will be talking about vaccines. Uh, the implementation of mRNA technology for COVID vaccines certainly changed the game here, and we'll likely see this technology expand into other respiratory viruses soon. So while many companies have products in preclinical or phase one testing, uh, for the sake of time today, we will only be focusing on vaccines in phase three testing. We'll start out with influenza. Uh, how do we anticipate influenza vaccination will change with the possible implementation of mRNA technology? And how will this new technology maybe compare to the annual influenza vaccines that we're used to currently? So I'll go ahead and take a stab at this one because I'm very passionate about vaccines. And with the flu vaccine, um, I think it's pretty fortuitous that in clinical infectious diseases in their August supplement, they were talking about precision vaccinology. So a lot of us are having kind of similar questions. And with precision vaccinology, it, it's really trying to say we have vulnerable populations and that we need more data in those populations so that we can optimize their vaccines. Do they need a higher dose? like with the flu? Do they need an adjuvanted vaccine? There's a whole new adjuvant pipeline now, um, thanks to some uh, developments and kind of breakthroughs in research with um, R&D. But with the mRNA vaccines, we're also wondering about duration of immunity. And are we going to be able to vaccinate once a year? Or is it going to be every six months? Are we going to have like a prime booster model? Um, and then one of the things that I really wanted to emphasize is, again, having that call to action for vaccines in some of our more vulnerable populations, particularly the immunocompromised. And if anyone can prove that it can be done, Shingrix has done it. Um, so we can say that it is possible to do a randomized control trial in immunocompromised patients to show that vaccines work. I, I actually would echo that. I think it, it, it's uh, uh, actually a disservice to the immunocompromised community that there haven't been more studies um, uh, in this population. I really do think for all vaccines, uh, as the COVID-19 vaccine, I think is crystallize for most people, we would expect a reduced response. And so we really need those studies to identify what are predictors of response, what are things that uh, may be modulated to help improve uh, recovery. And then, you know, one thing, and I, this part I think is true uh, across the board, particularly for the immunocompromised population, there's extreme enthusiasm for mRNA vaccines. They're the new kid on the block. And there are definitely a lot of uh, things about the vaccine technology that uh, uh, make it really exciting. But it may be that other uh, vaccine approaches may be uh, better in terms of response for certain patient populations. And in fact, even for healthy uh, patients, there may be some advantages as we, again, if, if comparing the uh, Novavax vaccine with an adjuvant uh, where we have with the uh, original uh, uh, strain having pretty good protection um, uh, late uh, against uh, some of the Omicron variants. 
um, really it speaks to perhaps thinking outside the box and uh, not just limiting our interest to mRNA vaccines. Now, I, I would expound on that a bit uh, with the, particularly with the flu vaccine and mRNA. The, the, the phase one and two studies are, you know, were just recently completed. And so um, I think even of us in the field don't have a good sense of, are they really going to work better? Uh, you know, I think we all appreciate we would like more effective flu vaccines, but even if they're only as good, one, one of the advantages of RNA is it's very nimble. And so, you know, one of the problems with flu vaccine is we've not been able to always predict well ahead of time to allow the production, uh, which it's crazy that we're still making a lot of flu vaccine in eggs. Um, but you know, you, you might detect some new variants and strains and be able to change it up and scale it up more more quickly. But we don't we don't have the data yet to really say is this going to be better uh, than the traditional flu vaccine as far as uh, efficacy. And the only other thing I'd say is that you know, at, in reference to vulnerable populations. Um, the other thing I think we we learned uh, with COVID is it's very important for us to be vaccinated to protect the people around us. Um, and in nursing homes, they showed this pretty nicely that when the staff was vaccinated, there was less death amongst the elderly compared to when you just vaccinated the older people where they, they might not respond so well. So I'm hoping that a little bit of that vaccine altruism will persist as we go forward with other vaccines. Other questions that were around prior to the pandemic, but were particularly highlighted during the pandemic are related to the role of hybrid immunity and the ability to correlate antibody titer levels, whether due to vaccines or infection to protection. For example, I've been vaccinated against COVID, but I've also had Omicron twice now. Do I possess this concept of super immunity like some of the trials would indicate? Did I not have an appropriate antibody response to the vaccines or was I just unfortunate enough to get two different variants that didn't have cross immunity protection? which is what I suspect. You know, while this concept became a popular point of discussion during COVID and, and hit the, a lot of the news, it's not an entirely new concept. Uh, every time that we incorporate a vaccine into the childhood vaccine schedule, like chickenpox or measles, in practice, we have to contend with whether or not our adults or persons who have already had the disease should also be vaccinated. Would vaccinating them provide them with this super immunity because they've had prior infection and have vaccination or is just having prior infection enough? And we can determine that based off of antibody levels. But that's also part of the question, right? You know, whether or not we're assessing protection correctly. You know, traditionally we've measured antibody titers but should we also be assessing T-cell involvement? Maybe we should be looking at interleukin levels, or is there some confounding variable that we've yet to identify? I think COVID has particularly emphasized the challenges of correlating these serologic quantifications to protection, because other than the flu, it's one of the few times where we are able to identify and quantify a significant enough level of a virus locally uh, to conduct clinical trials and actually be able to correlate geometric mean titers, or, or at least evaluate geometric mean titers and 
the ability of the vaccine to decrease symptoms or prevent disease. But then the other question that comes up and the other challenge is how do we interpret and apply these results to patient care when there are different strains of the virus or they are or are not in circulation? This comes up with the flu vaccine almost every year and it also comes up with other viruses that we don't always identify, such as human metanumavirus. As we consider application of these new technologies to new vaccines, um, and hopefully this continues to broaden, we need to determine whether antibody quantification is the appropriate way to determine disease prevention. What else can we be doing for our patients? Absolutely. I can't agree more, Anne, with what you had to say about uh, vaccine altruism. It seems like uh, vaccination has become, uh, for for hopefully some folks, uh, more of a team sport. And I think that team effort is going to be crucial as we move forward. And certainly will we'll hold true with the rest of the viruses that we'll be discussing today. So now that we've talked a little bit about flu, um, I want to talk about RSV vaccines. So uh, we'll get into this a bit, but while historical attempts uh, have been made to create a safe and effective RSV vaccine, we haven't uh, seen this play out like we would love it to, but we have four companies, uh, GSK, Pfizer, Moderna, and Janssen, all with products in phase three trials at present. Uh, and do you mind kicking us off here? What should we expect with these vaccines and how will the availability availability of these vaccines change the landscape potentially of RSV? Well, sure. Uh, you know, I think to, to set the mood, um, those of us that have been involved in RSV vaccine research are pretty pumped up. Uh, it has been a very long dry spell. It started with a very disastrous vaccine trial in young children back in the 60s, and it's been very, very slow. Uh, since that time, uh, with a, you know a, a lot of uh, dead bodies along the way for vaccine candidates, so you know what came along was really a game changer where they looked at um, the fusion protein, which is on the surface of RSV, and it is an unstable conformation. And when it is in its pre-fusion state before it fuses to the cell, it has a very different conformation and exposes some different epitopes. And then once it fuses to the cell, um, you have a completely different conformation. And some of those very important epitopes are lost. And so uh, once some very smart people at the NIH figured out how to stabilize prefusion F, that protein uh, stimulates very, very robust neutralizing antibody responses. And so uh, some of the data uh, in the phase one trials are incredibly encouraging. The, uh, they did some challenge studies with young healthy adults and the vaccines um, look great uh, at, at preventing disease. And I think that the current phase three trials, they are um, mostly geared towards older adults um, because these are subunit vaccines, but they have great potential also as maternal vaccines. And the other, you know, I've, I'm an internist, so of course I'm, I'm very interested to protect my, my sweet elderly patients. Uh, but the other great need is, is young infants. And um, after that initial trial, people have been very reluctant to use what we call a subunit vaccine, a protein vaccine in young babies because they had uh, a very naive uh, immune system. But we've learned um, some lessons from flu vaccine and other vaccines that uh, vaccinating the moms can really help protect 
uh, the baby. So uh, we're all very, very optimistic at this point. One thing that I would like to add is that as we're starting to look at the different vaccines that are coming to market, and I agree, I'm super excited about these RSV vaccines that might have a huge impact on our older adults. Um, we have to be thinking about what is the right outcome to evaluate. I know with flu, we've always looked at, well, not always, but recently we've been looking at an ordinal scale of symptoms. And early on in the pandemic, remdesivir did something similar. And there was this huge conversation about, is it the score on the ordinal scale? Is it the degree of change? Or should mortality be the end all be all? Or is decreasing symptoms by a day sufficient? So we need to start thinking about what the right outcome is so that we can help with some of these study designs. And related to RSV, I just, I have to throw in this tidbit. I'm sorry. I, I know it's a little bit nerdy, but as someone who is only a fur baby mom, um, I tell my students when I am teaching that kids are like cesspools for disease. And so that's one of the reasons why they need to get all the vaccines so that they don't give it to our older adults um, and other adults because they just have everything. <laughs> you walk into a little uh, preschool daycare in uh, February and, and all the little kids have their, you know, the green train tracks coming out of the nose. And, and what they do is they not only bring it home to uh, grandma and grandpa, they, they give it to the, the newborn in the house. So it really is uh, the school-aged children that you, as, as you mentioned, they, they're just teeming with all sorts of viruses. And there's clearly some very vulnerable populations uh, that, you know, hope, hopefully we can protect now. Absolutely. Uh, the last vaccine-related topic that I want to cover is the concept of co-formulated vaccines. So we have a couple of uh, COVID influenza or COVID flu RSV combinations uh, that are in development currently. Uh, Mike, you, do you mind kicking us off with how you think the availability of these combination products might impact the vaccine landscape? Yeah. Uh, so I think the big the big advantage of co-formulation is if the different vaccines need to be given on a regular basis. Uh, so if you have, uh, uh, you know, the, if we turn out to need a COVID booster every single year, or if the RSV vaccine needs to be given every year, then ideally having something where a single shot to protect against all three, and maybe in the future even more uh, viruses, um, really would be a huge advantage. Uh, uh, you know, most of these viruses uh, peak at uh, similar time periods, um, you know, with uh, our flu and RSV coming up uh, in the uh, uh, late fall through the early spring time period, uh, giving a vaccine that protects against both at, both at the same time, not only is a lot easier for a patient, uh, but also um, uh, provides uh, a broader protection since more people end up being uh, vaccinated. Um, you know, this is an area where some of the newer technologies, the viral vectors and the uh, mRNA vaccines are really going to be uh, helpful because you can package a bunch of different uh, signals uh, within these uh, different modalities and have uh, vaccine against uh, uh, multiple uh, infections. And I, I, it may even come to a point where some of these are co-formulated with other uh, pathogens uh, where we need regular or uh, intermittent uh, vaccination as long as they're on a similar time frame. 
One thing I would add is that as we are looking into these different co-formulated vaccines, we'll have to be cognizant of the potential for viral interference. In the pediatric data, there have been some combinations of vaccines that actually shows a decreased immune response to a component of the vaccine. So we'll just need to make sure that we're looking at all of that and weighing the cost benefits of maybe increasing adherence, which would be huge, especially for something like the flu, right, or, or COVID, um, and, and our ability to get enough of an immune response. Yeah, le less shots, um, I think, would always make people happier. Uh, I think the, the providers that have to um, deal with complex immunization schedules would also like it. Um, I think co-formulating RSV and flu together might be a little simpler at least to start with because they well they they have a winter time seasonality usually I, I think that problem is that with COVID it hasn't settled into a pattern yet it may I mean the other seasonal the seasonal coronaviruses tend to circulate in the winter and so we suspect it will kind of settle into the same pattern but right now it's just too helter skelter as to um you know, uh, think that we can do that. It makes sense to me that at this point in time, they should be doing the groundwork. Uh, so doing the studies to see if there's viral interference is one immunodominant and really gonna dominate the response to another one um, so that they're ready so that when things kind of settle down, hopefully uh, we, we can begin those kind of studies. Helter-skelter feels like an appropriate phrase with so many of the things that we're talking about today. So I love that you mentioned that. Uh, so uh, as we mentioned, uh, we are only focusing our in-depth discussion on vaccines that are further along in the pipeline. However, I was really excited to see that companies like Moderna do have co-formulated pediatric vaccines for human metanumovirus and parainfluenza in the works uh, currently in phase one. So we certainly anxiously await vaccines for all of our commonly encountered community-acquired respiratory viruses. Now we'll take a moment to pivot from prevention to treatment of these infections. So we'll start with influenza. It has the, the most treatment options numerically. Uh, so what uh, treatment strategies exist for influenza and how effective are these strategies after all? Crystal, do you want to kick us off? Sure. So earlier in the podcast, I mentioned that we may or may not know the best outcome to be studying. And flu has kind of set the threshold with the randomized control trials and primary outcomes. And with that, we have seen the neuramidase inhibitors be our mainstay of therapy. And they really only shorten the duration of symptoms by about a day, unless you can get to the patient and get them to take the medication within six hours of symptom onset. And then they may be able to de decrease it by more, but that's just getting someone to take a, a neuroamidase inhibitor within 48 hours is already challenging, right? Um, so does symptom duration being shortened by one day outweigh the cost for a medication that's still brand, you know, that's that's a personal decision right now. Um, but we do have three different options within the, the neuramidase inhibitors, also Tamivir, Paramivir, and Zanamivir, or at least here in the U.S. And we have seen a couple of recent trials come out that have started to compare the different neuramidase inhibitors. So I know that most people in, in, in the IDSA guidelines that even have also Tamivir is um, our preferred option and it's oral, it's easy to take. Uh, they had a recent trial looking at both severe inpatient and 
patients that were in the ED with influenza and whether or not they got oseltamivir and paramivir and showed no difference in outcomes. They both shortened therapy or shortened duration of symptoms by about a day. Um, and the real only difference that I, I personally don't think is very clinically much is that paramivir did seem to shorten the time to resolution of fever by about 12 hours. The other article that came out that I wanted to mention is the use of zanamivir. Uh, this is an inhaled uh, neuromidase inhibitor, so I have not personally seen it in practice a ton, particularly because it can cause bronchospasms. Um, and so even our patients who are on our ventilator, we don't necessarily always use it. So there was a study with it being used outpatient and compared to also Tamivir. And again, there was really no difference in outcomes for patients. So I think we've got three good neuroimidase inhibitors that are out there. And then the other class of medications that we have to treat the flu is the cap-dependent endonuclease inhibitor. So this is beloxavir marboxyl. Um, which is the pro-drug version. Um, and I believe, Mike, were you on the Flagstone uh, trial? I think you may have been second author. Yep, yep. Definitely involved with the Flagstone uh, as well as uh, Capstone 2 in the uh, complicated uh, patients. Okay, well, uh, you're more of an expert than I am in that regard then. Um, but just throwing it out there that Veloxivir has picked up a couple of extra um, indications or some good randomized control trials indicating that it can be used with uncomplicated flu, complicated flu, and even post-exposure prophylaxis for, for household contacts. Um, so we've got a lot of good data that's come out with Veloxivir. And with the Flagstone trial, uh, a lot of people were excited for that one to come out. That was the combination of a neuramidase inhibitor plus uh, Veloxivir or the neuramidase inhibitor alone. And there didn't seem much of a, a difference there, other than the fact that the combination seemed to shorten duration of viral shedding. It went from roughly five days to roughly one day of viral shedding, which might be huge for our immunosuppressed patients or the household contacts around our immunosuppressed patients. Yeah, the, and I think the, the real study on that point is is ongoing, um, and hopefully we'll have a, a readout uh, uh, where the, the what's called the Blockstone study, where they're trying to see if early treatment of household contacts prevents onward transmission to uh, other people. And presumably it would reduce the, uh, uh, the ongoing transmission because you have rapid and significant reduction uh, in viral load. Um, I, I wanted to go back a little bit to the, the, the neuromidinidase inhibitors. And I, I, I want, and this is just my pet peeve, everyone focuses on this one day of clinical improvement, but there's a lot more to these therapies than just that. Particularly in high-risk patients, there's a reduction in complications. And, you know, it's a significant reduction. They have uh, lower rates of uh, uh, complications requiring antibiotics, fewer clinic visits, and a trend towards uh, fewer hospitalizations. So, uh, you know, really these have a, a significant benefit, particularly in those patients that are at highest risk. And then, you know, I think that your point, uh, which is really important, is getting these patients treated early is something that's oftentimes missed. Uh, you know, the study you were highlighting is if you can get a therapy within six to 12 hours, you can get a four-day reduction in terms of uh, 
in symptom recovery. That's huge. I don't think any of us would say that's a small or not meaningful uh, difference. So the question is, how do we do a better job of uh, getting patients access? And there's an effort to try to uh, get uh, oseltamivir over the counter. Um, so we'll have to wait and see uh, what comes of that. Uh, but I think, you know, with patients' comfort in using home diagnostics for COVID-19, we may be in an era where people are more likely to test themselves for flu. The yield of the uh, flu uh, rapid antigen tests are a little lower than for COVID-19, but still are really incredible uh, tests. Um, I think the big challenge still, just like COVID uh, testing, is there's its cost. Um, you know, not everyone's going to pay to have the antigen test in-house when they get sick. Uh, and then uh, how do we get the, the therapy uh, uh, to the patients much more quickly? And then the, the, we've been focusing mostly on the outpatient side of things. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think our overall goal is get these patients treated early so that they don't uh, uh, end up in the hospitalization. And unfortunately, the data shows we do a terrible job of that. Um, there, there was a study uh, done by CDC looking at high-risk patients that had a confirmed uh, diagnosis of COVID-19 within 48 hours after symptom onset. And still only about a little less than a third of patients uh, got treated. So that's 65% of the patient population that would hugely benefit from this that are totally uh, not being treated and frequently getting antibiotics, uh, which we'll probably get to a little later. Um, the uh, the population, though, where we have the biggest challenge uh, are among our hospitalized patient populations. Um, and I do agree, part of the challenges with these studies is, are we using the right endpoint? But I think the other challenge that we have is a regulatory hurdle. Um, uh, currently, there's no approved drug for hospitalized patients, even though we all use oseltamivir for this indication. Uh, and so you can't perform a non-inferiority study. You have to do a superiority study. And can you imagine trying to do a study of ceftriaxone versus another cephalosporin, where the study design was ceftriaxone alone versus ceftriaxone plus the new cephalosporin? You'd never prove the new cephalosporin was better in that study. Uh, they're going to be uh, very similar. And that's the, the trial designs that we've been uh, having for the most part in the hospitalized uh, population. And this flagstone study, uh, again, I do think uh, raises uh, some opportunities, more rapid uh, uh, reduction in viral load, but also a reduction in the emergence of resistance in those patients on dual therapy. Uh, and so this is something that I think we should be studying, not just introducing as standard of care for practice in our immunocompromised patients. They're at higher risk of uh, resistance, they have longer duration of viral shedding, uh, we do need to understand if uh, this intervention uh, would help these patients. And it's important to note in that uh, inpatient setting, it's not just a single dose of uh, biloxivir like we use on the outpatient side, uh, it's uh, redosed uh, every uh, fourth day um, while the patients are symptomatic. So again, slightly a different approach, but something that we need to really uh, better understand. I completely agree. And I, you know, thank you for adding those additional points. And one of the things that you said really spoke to me where you were talking about how COVID has illustrated the feasibility of people wanting to get a test whenever they have the sniffles or trying to figure out if it's COVID. One of my biggest wish lists from this pandemic is that we get an over-the-counter viral panel because um, I just want to know, right? Why do I need to burden the healthcare system when I just need supportive care? 
but I still need proof for documentation for school or work or, or whatnot. Um, also, I'm just that neurotic and I, and I want that. <laughs> I want to know. Um, and I think it's a good step to getting us to that sci-fi Star Trek kind of perspective where they have the little wand that you can wave over someone and then it just gives you all the data that you need. This is a, a, an OTC viral panel will be a good first step for me. That's my wish list. You know, and, and that's a great point. I share, you know, I'm a virus nerd, so, you know, I want to know what I have. Um, but it's been a real yin and yang of um, the viral testing and then what are you going to do about it? And so the antiviral therapies um, require that you have a sensitive and specific rapidly available test, and yet nobody wants to make that if you really can't do much about it, apart from antibiotic stewardship. And so having mostly dealt with uh, adult uh, disease, you know, we, we need molecular diagnostics because the the rapid tests, uh, the, the viral load in people's noses for things like RSV is generally not high enough that the, the usual rapid tests uh, don't work very well. So they're misleading. And so, you know, molecular tests that with the wand, like, you know, in, in Star Trek, um, you know, used to be thought as science fiction, but it, it's really not. There are some uh, PCRs that are, um, you know, can be available in doctor's offices. So. Maybe we won't be able to pick it up at, you know, uh, the, the local pharmacy quite yet, but, you know, we can maybe get them into doctor's offices. Perfect. Thanks, guys, for that uh, lively overview. Uh, Mike, I want to say thank you for giving the um, neuraminidase inhibitors their their flowers there for a minute. I think we hear clinicians um, get a little jaded, like you said, and fixate on that. You know, it's only one day of symptom recovery, but there really are uh, sectors of patients who, you know, can benefit greatly from those therapies. And it's always a good reminder. I think the other thing on that is people dole out antibiotics left and right. And really, they're probably only getting a day of benefit for those for, as well. So, you know, they're comfortable doing that, but not uh, giving this uh, patients feel bad. They want to feel better quicker. Or, or maybe they're not getting any benefit and they're just getting the side well, yeah. No, that um, is definitely the case. There, there's one one other point that is probably worth making about the, the neuraminidase inhibitors. And obviously the sooner, the better that you can give them after um, symptom onset. But there, there are data now in hospitalized patients. And you know, with the caveat, it's observational, but there does still appear to be benefit um, if a patient is sick enough, hospitalized, testing positive for the flu to administer the neuraminidase inhibitors outside that strict 48 hour window, that there appears to be still a mortality benefit um, outside that. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I think that it takes a while to gather the data as imperfect as it is, but, um, you know, there, there are those benefits. Yeah. And, and there's, and the, the, while they're retrospective, as you pointed out, there's clearly a statistically significant benefit out through at least day five and a numeric, but not statistically significant difference out even to day 11 in those patients. So really, you know, the 48-hour rule does not apply for those patients with the severe complicated flu. 
Wonderful. Uh, now that we are wrapping up the treatment discussion around influenza, I'd like to look to RSV and think about the same questions. So, um, Anne, do you mind getting us started with a little bit of the review of treatment strategies and sort of how we can prioritize working through those and for what patients? Yeah, sure. You know, um, RSV treatments similar to vaccines has had kind of a, a long and difficult journey. Um, really, there's only one approved uh, treatment for RSV, and that is inhaled ribavirin, and that is only for infants. Um, there really is no approved antiviral treatment for adults or um, immunocompromised patients. Um, and one of the problems with inhaled ribavirin, although there is data that there is uh, some benefit, it has become extraordinarily and just outlandishly expensive. So we really don't have good options um, for people with RSV. Now, to complicate when you think about treating RSV with an antiviral is when you think about the disease, what's the host response to the virus and, and what is actually the virus? Uh, because so much of RSV disease from babies up to older people is um, reactive airways and bronchospasms. Now, you know, I'm going to turn it over to Mike to talk about the immunocompromised host. That's that's a different ball of wax. But you know, when you're sort of out living your life uh, and you get one of these rotten RSV infections, even if you have underlying heart disease or um, you know, let's say emphysema and are, are quite at risk. Um, it's it, it's again not completely clear how much of your illness is really due to uncontrolled viral replication. So that's one of the problems uh, that we face. Um, now it makes some sense that if you shut down viral replication, whatever aberrant host responses is taking off might be abrogated. Um, the other problem with RSV antivirals is this issue of getting people treated early. Uh, so with influenza, people, not everybody, but people tend to feel bad more abruptly. Uh, they have fevers, they get myalgias, and particularly with older people, they may seek medical attention a little, little faster. The, the tempo of an RSV illness um, is that you, it starts with a cold, and they get a runny nose, and they might get a cough, and then it sort of gradually gets worse and short of breath with a lot of phlegm. And so by the time they're seeking medical attention, either going to their doctor or the emergency room, we're really generally around five to six days. And so that's that's just a tough lift for an antiviral, knowing that most antivirals work best uh, when they're given early. So there, there have been, um, there was a a medication uh, that was developed by Gilead um, that didn't show any benefit. Um, uh, Janssen had a, a drug in early development that um, they decided not to take forward. So there may be things in the pipeline, but at least in the adult population, it, it's tough. Now, pediatrics um, might be a different uh, story. And then I do think the virus is the problem in your world, Mike. Yeah, I, I I would agree. I think you know it's it's very interesting. Although it's interesting because the studies for the Gilead compound in lung and stem cell transplant uh, patients um, 
in the lungs didn't really have much of an effect on the virus. Um, so, you know, how much of, of uh, this is virus versus a host immune response. But in general, these patients uh, have much higher viral load. Uh, and so reducing that viral load would be uh, beneficial. They shed virus for a lot longer. And so theoretically, there, there should be a, a benefit with the treatment uh, of those uh, patients. I think what we'll have to do is, you know, get some studies uh, that show that there, there's uh, a clear benefit. The, the studies that have been done that have shown a benefit have been studies of uh, small interfering uh, RNA uh, for the lung transplant population where it really did show reduction of uh, chronic uh, rejection. And so I, I do think that uh, we need studies not only uh, of these antivirals, but I think to, as you were pointing out, Ann, you know, to help us better understand what's driving illness at different phases of the illness in both the immunocompetent and immunocompromised uh, patient population. One of the real challenges that we have in the immunocompromised uh, population is ribavirin still is viewed as the gold standard um, uh, for these patients and trying to design studies that uh, either study it or study alternative therapies usually need to include ribavirin. Um, but in kind of subgroup analyses for both the stem cell and the lung transplant uh, studies uh, with the Gilead compound, there was really no difference in virology or clinical outcomes in the smaller subset of uh, patients. It was only about 20 to 30% of patients that didn't get ribavirin, but really there was nothing statistically significant in their course or virology, whether they received ribavirin or not. And there's clearly toxicity. Um, I always have the question with oral ribavirin, are we actually achieving a therapeutic uh, level of drug in the uh, relevant uh, tissue? Um, and, and I think, uh, especially now that uh, there's significant cost with inhaled ribavirin, um, really understanding this is going to be critical uh, for our care. And then, you know, I really hope that there's also some more effort put into monoclonal antibodies or similar uh, types of uh, therapeutics. And there are some that are uh, being uh, worked on uh, in the pipeline, uh, particularly for the immunocompromised patients. The, the challenge with palivizumab is it probably would really help prevent a lot of disease in our immunocompromised uh, patient population. The problem is, is since it's dosed quite expensively for little babies, the adult price tag uh, is like a car. Um, and so, you know, it's it's just not something that uh, unless you have a significant uh, benefit is uh, going to be approved by uh, insurers. And so, again, we have better ways to develop these types of uh, uh, therapies that would be more cost effective and, and maybe an area where we need to really focus on development. Yeah, if you had an adult that received inhaled ribavirin and palivizumab, it would be maybe more than the cost of the transplant. Um, it, it's just, um, it, it's a real unmet medical need, I think, for, for products for this population. And, and just to add, in addition to the costs surrounding inhaled ribavirin, there's also the practical and logistical challenges related to inhaled ribavirin because it's so teratogenic. The patients often have to go into this tent to keep the inhaled ribavirin around the patient. And the nursing has to be coordinated so that women of childbearing age are aware of the risks um, related to inhaled ribavirin. And you don't have some of those logistical barriers related to oral ribavirin. 
Um, and there actually, I, I did want to give a, a little bit of a shout out to the, the Fullett and Aitken article, Sam Aitken, for those of you that are um, seeing his name pop up everywhere, including on some ID guidelines, we're very proud of him. Um, so they were able to do a retrospective chart review at MD Anderson, and they looked at some of our stem cell recipients with RSV. Most of them had myeloablative conditioning. There was a, a good proportion or maybe half that had an aloe instead of an auto for a transplant. And really they didn't see that a difference between inhaled and oral ribavirin, whether it came to mortality or to progression into a lower respiratory tract infection. Um, really the driver for the 30 and 90 day mortality there was the immunodeficiency scoring index. Um, and I should rephrase, I don't know if it's necessarily a driver, but that had the strongest correlation. Um, rather than which formulation of ribavirin the patients received. So that was very encouraging for a lot of us that are trying to uh, use oral ribavirin, whether that's for price reasons or it's for the practical reasons. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that this highlights an important uh, fact is that the, not all patients with these infections are created equally. Um, and uh, again, this is where I think uh, we have to better understand where people are in their clinical illness. I think it's not just our immunocompromised patients. I think our uh, hospitalized patients with all of these respiratory viruses, um, uh, we really have to understand what's the virus, what's the host immune response, what is, you know, uh, permanently damaged lung tissue uh, in these patients, and then perhaps complications of the infection. And that might guide which therapies are more optimized for those individuals. Um, and then just to sort of round out the discussion of intravenous gamma globulin while they're, you know, giving palivizumab to an adult uh, is not tenable. There um, are some products that are enhanced for RSV neutralizing antibody. Um, Respigam uh, used to be uh, what they had before. Uh, Pelavizumab, but there um, is, is a company um, that is currently making a, a product that is um, high titered RSV immunoglobulin. You know, whether uh, antibody at that stage is, is really beneficial, it, it's hard to know, but I, I would echo some of, of the comments that have made about things we've learned from COVID just because there's there were so many numbers. Um, you know, I've, I've used to not be particularly enthusiastic about treating infections with antibody. Antibody is usually what you do to prevent an infection by the time you have an established uh, infection. Uh, but with COVID, they, they did show that um, very early treatment when somebody is not desperately ill, uh, there were some beneficial effects. So clearly always better as a uh, preventative measure. But I think even if you look at the totality of all of the data, uh, even with ribavirin in the, you know, for example, stem cell transplant uh, population, the earlier the treatment is really the only population that we usually see any benefit. So if they've got upper tract disease, they're less likely to progress to lower tract disease or get very sick. Once they're once they have pneumonia, I think it's going to be very hard to uh, uh, intervene on those uh, immunocompromised patients. Wonderful. Thanks y'all for those comments about, you know, the variety of patient populations that we're looking at. And again, underscoring the need to, to individualize based on the clinical scenario at hand. 
anything to add about the other three viruses that we are talking about today? So anything from the treatment standpoint for parainfluenza, human metanumavirus, or rhinovirus, or are we emphasizing supportive care for these infections? Well, I, I can start us off with, with rhinovirus. Um, really, uh, you know, we're, we're stuck with uh, supportive care at this, this time. Um, there, there's been a lot of different products targeting all sorts of different uh, parts of the viral infection cycle um, that really have not uh, come to fruition. There, there are over 169 different serotypes and some of the different uh, viral types um, respond differently, even in animal models, to uh, antiviral agents. So I, I do think uh, that um, it, that is supportive care. Um, parainfluenza and human metanumavirus, there, there is a tendency to use ribavirin uh, because, well, we can. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know if you know of any data, guys, but... Um, I, I don't think there's compelling evidence. And, and then there is this uh, very interesting molecule, DAS-181, uh, which was originally developed for flu. Um, and uh, it's been around kind of for a long time and it's been very slow in development, but it does have activity for uh, parainfluenza. And um, I keep hoping that it will be uh, brought along because uh, the initial um, information uh, looked promising. Yeah, the phase three study is going with the DS-181. I think it's just been stalled a bit because of the, the pandemic, so not many uh, PIV uh, cases. I, I will say, I mean, that this is the one virus where, um, you know, even the retrospective data shows the ribavirin doesn't really do anything. I think this is uh, treating more us than the patient, um, you know, thinking that we're actually helping doing by doing something when in fact I don't think we're accomplishing anything. Um, uh, but I will say of, of all the viruses, this is this is one that I think we really need uh, a, a therapy. Um, uh, in the most immunocompromised patients, particularly the stem cell recipients with lymphodepletion, um, they, they have a really high rate of progression to pneumonia and death. And so this, this is uh, one virus that we really don't have great options for. And I think a lot of us are hopeful for DAS, but again, I think back to our prior discussion, really need to get people early and focus on the most immunocompromised uh, patients to, to uh, get the uh, optimized uh, outcome. And I think poor human metanumavirus gets kind of kicked to the curb. It's sort of like the RSV stepchild in, in terms of therapeutics. So people will try uh, RSV. Um, you know, uh, we've seen a lot of people get really sick, particularly among our immunocompromised population. I think the advantage is that they, we don't, there's not as many of the infections in that population for whatever reason. And so um, I think that does need uh, additional study. And probably we need something other than ribavirin in those patients as well. And then adenovirus, you know, uh, I think a lot of us were sort of excited by some of the data that was coming out with brinstafavir, better uh, tolerability and uh, some uh, evidence of uh, clinical uh, benefit now because of the way that it's licensed with a specific statement that it doesn't work well for adenovirus, you'd be having a hard time, I think, uh, you know, getting access to it for the treatment of uh, adenovirus. That being said, I think in most patients, 
uh, watchful waiting, even in our immunocompromised patients going down on their immunosuppression probably is the mainstay of therapy. Uh, but every once in a while, you'll see these uh, patients more often in immunocompromised, but we've seen a couple times a year, really sick, healthy patients that come in with bad uh, pneumonia ending up on ECMO. And in those kind of settings, we'll typically use uh, uh, sidofovir in those uh, patients. So definitely oftentimes do some renal dysfunction, whether that's the drug or the underlying uh, illness. But I do think that that's uh, currently our best choice uh, for these patients until uh, we can figure out how to get uh, Brin sidofovir either as part of a study uh, or using the approved drug uh, uh, that's restricted for smallpox. I agree. I was so excited for Brin Sidofavir. It's an oral drug or oral version of Sidofavir, and it seemed to be so much better tolerated. It didn't have the nephrotoxicity associated with it. I was excited for it. I was hoping that having that smallpox indication was going to mean that it was available, but it just hasn't seemed to, to cross over into practice much. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to mention as we're talking about these viral infections is that in a lot of our patients, they're able to handle viral infections and fight those off, but we also have to be mindful that there is a decent portion of the population that will then develop a subsequent bacterial infection on top of that. Uh, so for example, in the pediatric patients that have the flu and their flu gets better, they may end up with a subsequent Staph aureus pneumonia and end up on ECMO, and in those cases are, are fairly sad, unfortunately. Um, so we just have to be cognizant that sometimes after the viral infection, patients are predisposed to subsequent bacterial infections. Yeah, I, I think that, that you, you make the, the, the point about bacterial infections, but I, I think a lot of times our providers get overly anxious about those uh, bacterial infections. Um, again, I go back to that CDC study where, you know, less than a third of patients uh, got uh, uh, antivirals, but about 60% got an antibiotic. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of times people think they're doing patients uh, a lot of good by giving them something when in fact they could be just giving them C. diff or uh, other uh, uh, side effects uh, from the medication. Uh, and I think that there's a, a lot of uh, studies that clearly show that they're not needed in those patients. And I think if you want to talk about an area where we really need uh, to think about a, a study to really uh, uh, think through um, antibiotics is in the hospitalized patients. Uh, we did a retrospective study looking at 10 years worth of uh, uh, data in patients hospitalized with a positive uh, flu diagnostic. Um, only 25% were started on uh, oseltamivir within the first six hours of admission. Um, so definitely not a lot of empiric therapy. That improved to 86% uh, at within 24 hours. So a lot of people had a positive test, they reacted to it. 98% had were started on antibiotics uh, at day one and 45% were discharged on an antibiotic. Um, when, whereas using uh, you know, uh, the data that we could get our hands on, there are only about 6% of those patients that had anything that could be remotely documented uh, to be an infection. Uh, and so I think where what we really need, particularly for those patients, I don't think you're gonna prevent 
um, uh, antibiotics up front. Maybe you will if you now that we have more rapid uh, diagnostics uh, for these uh, patients. Um, but what can we do to uh, convince uh, doctors to stop the antibiotics pretty early, not just for flu, but for a lot of these other viruses? You know, someone has classic RSV and they're still on ceftriaxone and azithromycin, which is not doing them any good. 100% agreed, and I did not mean to imply that I wanted to start everyone on antibiotics right away. <laughs> um, I actually am strongly in favor of the stewardship approach that you mentioned. I'm hoping that with these new diagnostics, we won't need the antibiotics as much. Um, I, I was more so just thinking about our ICU patients that sometimes after the viral episode, they'll um, develop a, a different kind of infection, but absolutely agree. So it's, it's probably a, a, a good segue into, um, you know, the issues surrounding bacterial complications of, of respiratory viruses, particularly in hospitalized patients. And, you know, I, I've uh, spent a lot of time working in this space and, you know, the doctors are trying to do the right thing. They don't want to hurt their patients, but, you know, we've made huge strides in viral diagnostics. You know, um, we have these wonderful multiplex PCRs. And it's interesting, it has not resulted in a huge change in management, which is why a lot of the, the hospitals have sort of really uh, put the kibosh on, you know, testing everybody. I mean, we all like to know what it is. Patients like to know what they have, but it doesn't really lead to the change in management that, that we would desire. And, and it's partly because the bacterial diagnostics have really not kept pace with the viral diagnostics. We are terrible at ruling out um, a concomitant bacterial infection. And, you know, there's a lot of data that there's a relationship there that, um, you know, from prior flu pandemics, from animal models, um, there, there is an interaction of a virus setting you up for a bacteria. So you get these sick older people in the hospital and it's just so hard for the clinician to stand there. Um, frequently the chest x-ray is not perfectly normal. Frequently the white kind is a little bit elevated and procalcitonin has some value. It's not a, a perfect uh, a test, but it, it, it provides some guidance as long as you don't turn your brain off. Uh, but what we really need is some better um, bacterial diagnostics. And it's probably going to come from uh, looking at the host response because so often if you detect a bacteria in a respiratory secretion, uh, it could be colonization. So interpreting uh, respiratory cultures are, are difficult. So people are doing work on gene expression, looking for that unique signature that is, is characteristic for you have a virus, alone, you have a bacteria alone, or, or you actually have both, and with the eye towards guiding people on antibiotic choices. And I, I kind of agree with you, Mike. I think probably the, at least to start with the goal will be to get people to stop the antibiotics uh, very early on, you know, because um, it, it's, it's so hard to control what they do in emergency rooms. <laughs> well, that's why I think, you know, that you're not going to be able to stop that first dose, but, you know, could we easily, you know, like once you have a, a positive test and, you know, no, no focal infiltrate, let's say on, on uh, uh, chest trait, just stop the antibiotics and watch these patients. It would have to be a study, but really be very aggressive. And, and then perhaps you could define who are the ones that uh, you need to be worried about. It's interesting. We, we did a survey of our physicians on what, 
what risk of a bacterial infection would you be willing to to accept uh, to stop the antibiotic? And um, it, it was ninety. They they need to have a sensitivity uh, of ninety percent. They are very very reluctant to stop antibiotics. Um, and you know, it, with constant stewardship and guidance, and um, you you can help people become more comfortable. But it's 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 really tough. It sounds like we have a bit of a, a running wish list from this episode. So we would like over the counter point of care viral tests that are readily accessible. Aggressive antimicrobial stewardship, amen, agree. In the setting of a viral infection, we need some better diagnostics for ruling in or ruling out bacterial infections and some therapy for parainfluenza and a little bit of justice for human metanumovirus to stop being treated like, like RSV's little sibling. Um, so that's just a, a easy peasy wish list. If any one of our listeners has solutions for these problems, we uh, would love to hear them. All right. Uh, before we wrap up our conversation today, I want to give the group one more opportunity to impart any last minute wisdom. Uh, what do you think every ID clinician should know or remember when treating these community acquired respiratory viruses? I think first, think about the respiratory viruses and have a best, best sense of what's going on in your community. And then start the, the treatment early. If you're going to do anything, don't wait. That uh, is going to reduce the efficacy. Uh, I think a lot of people are worried about resistance and whatnot. If the patient is given oseltamivir and they don't have flu, there's really not much of a resistance risk uh, uh, by giving the drug. Um, the, the drug is very well tolerated. So if you're thinking about it, treat them while you're waiting for the diagnostics. And I would say, although flu is incredibly important and we know the damage that it's it does, that a, a lot of providers in the community just, they don't think about all the other viruses. Um, they think those are things that just happen to, to little kids. And whether it's that you might need to use specific therapy if it's an immunocompromised person or it's just a matter of maybe trying to provide better uh, antibiotic stewardship I encourage people to think about these other viruses. They are they are out there. In addition to thinking about these other viruses, if you can, I, I would say test for it. I, I don't know the cost difference, so that is on me, but I would think that people would like to know which virus it is that they have. And as we kind of mentioned earlier in the podcast, if we get more data on these other viruses, maybe we can find better trend data or we can see some of the effects of the pandemic or some of these infection control markers and the impact on seasonality, uh, well, that would be really helpful. So I think that having a, like a multiplex PCR or having a more broader test can be very helpful. And we have seen good agreement between some of the rapid tests and some of the PCR tests. So hopefully that, that will be on the horizon. Um, and the other thing that I would just say for, for ID clinicians is to think about what their patients need to do in order to prevent transmission, right? So maybe from this pandemic, one of the things that we'll get is that people will learn to stay freaking home <laughs> when they're sick um, and not spread all of the viruses. It doesn't matter which virus it is, don't spread it and be respectful. So making sure that we're reinforcing those conversations so people don't feel like they need to have antibiotics just in case or anything to that effect. 
You know, I, I think you bring up a, a really good point. And I think it's, again, it's lessons learned from COVID that, um, you know, if you're a frail person with significant underlying heart and lung disease, and, you know, flu is just everywhere, it, if you need to go out, wear a mask. <laughs> they actually they actually work. Um, same thing is if, you know, if you want to visit your grandchildren and they have colds, you, you may consider, um, you know, wearing a mask that they, they're quite helpful at preventing um, infection. I think more than we ever envisioned they would be. For sure. Other countries have been doing it for a long time. And I've had those surgical masks in my purse that I used to wear them at the airport because I would get sick every time I would fly. Um, so I've, I had that in my purse before COVID and now I've had even more in my purse. Um, but yeah, it's something that's definitely practical and easy to do because we've seen it in other countries. And so maybe, maybe the U.S. will be able to keep that after. Well, you know, it's a little socially more acceptable now in the U.S in some parts of the country. Well, yeah, but uh, it would be for people that are worried that they are vulnerable because not everybody is gonna stay home from work when they are sick or just be out in the grocery store or whatever. Um, Perfect. The geographic distribution of comfort with masks is perhaps a, a separate episode. Um, the, uh, I think we we can all relate and lament. Um, I, I also think I told a, a bit of a fib at the beginning of this episode when I said we weren't going to talk about COVID because I think the the subtitle of this episode could easily be lessons learned from COVID uh, and how they've, they've sort of impacted the way we handle the rest of these community acquired respiratory viruses. So I'm sorry for bamboozling our audience earlier. Uh, this brings us to our segment uh, called I Feel Nerdy. Uh, this is meant to be a safe space for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. For today's edition, I would love to know your favorite community-acquired respiratory virus and why that virus is your favorite. So for me, I think it would be flu just because that's what I've focused on for uh, most of my career. And, it, uh, you know, I think it's it's just such an interesting uh, virus. We have good therapies and preventative therapies in uh, the form of vaccines. We definitely can do better um, on all fronts. I think our, our vaccines uh, really have a lot of potential to improve. Our antivirals have been game-changing, uh, but still uh, could uh, benefit from uh, approaches that are easier to deliver um, and uh, perhaps have uh, better efficacy. Um, it's also a virus that, you know, just when we forget about it, it comes back and causes a pandemic that we all have to pay attention to. So, uh, you know, I think it's a great virus to learn a lot about and, and one that we're, we'll continue to learn how to better uh, deal with in the future. So uh, mine, mine, of course, is RSV. I've been studying it since I was a fellow. And, um, you know, now I qualify for the geriatric RSV vaccine. So I, I've really been waiting a long time. But, you know, it's more than just my research. I, you know, it's up close and personal. My kids had it when they were little. Um, I've watched lots of older people that I've taken care of um, do poorly with it. I just uh, had a colleague whose grandchild was in the ICU with it. It's a very terrible virus. And, um, you know, it, it, for those of us that don't mind uh, phlegmy, snotty people, it's uh, something that, um, you know, I always want to, I'm very passionate about studying it, but I 
I've seen enough of the disease. I just want, want it to, to be gone. So, you know, we, we need a vaccine. Okay, you guys. So I think as a public health advocate, uh, I definitely would go with flu because we have the vaccine, right? It's one of the only ones we have the vaccine. But because this podcast is what it is, I think I'm going to have to pick human metanumavirus because it's meta. This is what I feel nerdy is for. Um, I think I have to go with Mike on this one. Flu would be my my pick, although human metanumo, it sounds like needs some more more attention. It's in the title, so that's a it's a tempting choice. And certainly with the the RSV vaccines on the horizon, uh, Anne, I'm with you. I'm hopeful that uh, hopefully that landscape will be be changing soon. All right. Uh, thank you all so, so much for joining us today. Uh, as we promised, I think this episode has a little bit uh, for everyone, regardless of the practice space that you find yourselves in. So can't thank uh, our panelists enough for joining us and, and sharing their wisdom on these community-acquired respiratory viruses. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a pleasure to be here. Fun to yeah. talk to you all. Thanks for having me. It's been so fun. All right. And thank you to our listeners for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. I have been your host, Jillian Hayes, and our featured speakers have been Ann Falsey, Crystal Hodge, and Mike Eisen. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by myself and Rachel Britt. It was edited by Mary Vance and peer-reviewed by Mandy Noval and Brandon Bookstaver. Our production team includes Anna Zhao and Veronica Zafont. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Aaron McCreary, and our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future. <laughs>